This is a Together Church podcast, a place to explore meaning, friendship, and faith in Jesus. We'd love you to connect with our community. Find out more at togetherchurch.com.au. So we're going to switch gears <laughs> a little bit because I actually wanted to start uh, with some 1990s trivia. How's that for a killjoy moment? So, we're going to start with some 1990s trivia, and I would like you to let me know, what is this? What are these? Who knows? Can anyone remember what this is? It's a hidden picturey thing. It's a magic eye. You've got it. That's it, Chloe. You nailed it. So this, for those who are in my generation, uh, is... Uh, called a magicai, and there were these kind of crazy, weird images that if you look at them for long enough so that you would get a headache and you could stare with kind of blurring your eyes and looking through the picture, a kind of this amazing three-dimensional image would appear. I know you're trying. You're not listening to me, are you? Um, and if you've never seen... Actually, I must admit, I found this on the internet. I had to check just in case. Um, but... Um, when, when, you, um, when you look at these images, if you've never seen one before, kind of a, a 3D picture kind of pops out. And, and it looks not as clear as this shark image, but essentially what they are is they're two-dimensional pictures that if you look at them, there's a three-dimensional image behind it, but sometimes we can't yet see it. So it's, it's an optical illusion. And the trick is to discover what's there, what you can't see. Uh, here's another optical illusion that others will have seen. Uh, so the, the middle line looks longer for most of us than the top and the bottom line, where in actual fact they're exactly the same length. Yeah, uh, This one's pretty cool. I love the square in the middle, even though there is no blue square. <laughs> Again, your eyes see what it wants to see. Uh, my favourite is this one. <coughs> if, if you move your eyes around a bit, it, it looks like a GIF. It starts to move around, and yet it's a totally static image. Isn't it? Yeah, I know. That's cool. So your mind sees something that you actually can't see, which I think's, which I think's pretty good. Uh, so the thing is, and the reason I put this here is sometimes uh, what is obvious is hidden in plain sight, as we can see in terms of optical illusions, which which shapes what I want to talk about today. Uh, and I'll, let me give you an example in terms of discipleship or our kind of Christian walk. So a number of years ago, I was a guest speaker. I visited a different congregation. And after the talk, a, a person came up and they gave a talk about communion. And they talked. It was a really good talk, actually. And, and, and this gentleman said that he'd been part of the congregation for 40 years. And over the time, he realized that he had probably attended 2,000 or more shared communions with this very same congregation, uh, which is amazing. And, and this person said, isn't it incredible when he thinks about it, how much 2,000 communions have shaped him, have shaped his thinking and his habits and his belief and his identity in Jesus. Uh, and I really agreed with him. Uh, communion is incredibly powerful. But I couldn't help but be distracted because right next to me, there was a seven or eight-year-old who had an iPad and they were playing Angry Birds. And I really like Angry Birds. <laughs> and, uh, and they'd been doing it the whole service, but there was, particularly as I kind of listened on the one hand to this talk about 40 years of, of 2,000 
communions. And at the same time, I actually started to count the kids swiping and I kind of did a mathematical equation. And I reckon he probably would swipe about 2,000 times you know, in a week or maybe two, you know, 2,000 birds and at least 1,000 pigs kind of knocked off every few days, you know. And, and it just made me think, you know, because it, it made me wonder in terms of habits and practices and discipleship. Uh, you know, sometimes the things that are most forming us are not necessarily the things that we think are forming us. And the things that aren't forming us are not forming us as much as we think. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that communion isn't important. It's far more powerful because it's filled with the Spirit of God than angry birds. Uh, however, it's amazing that if you swipe a screen that many times, I wonder how it forms us and I wonder if we pay attention to those things. Oh, there was my image. Uh, and so... What's interesting is I looked at the stats, and I am writing a book on technology right now, so it's in my head. But uh, the average Australian adult spends one-third of their life on a screen. So if you're born nowadays, uh, you spend one-third of your life. So that's 9.4 hours on average. I think the average office worker is 12 hours on a screen per day. So this is just the average Aussie. It's quite a large amount of time. In fact, it's more time online, or we spend more time online than we do eating, commuting, working and exercising combined. Which is fascinating, isn't it? The average Australian nowadays spends more than three hours a day on their smartphone, uh, which includes work, but also a lot of personal life. It's a significant time. And there was one study, uh, the, the US is much higher, the average is about 12 hours a day, so it's fascinating. Um, but in one study showed that the Australian average office worker will spend 44 years of their life online. So I'm 44 years old, Imagine if I'd spent every minute of every hour up to right now on a screen. That is what the average person is expected to spend on a screen uh, more than half their life. Isn't that interesting in terms of formation? You know, 44 years of life, 2,000 communions. I wonder how we're being formed. So, look, there's a few interesting quotes, okay? I really like this um, from Rod Dreyer, who wrote this in the Benedict Option. He said, Technology is a kind of liturgy. Okay, it's a kind of liturgy that teaches us to frame our experiences in the world in certain ways, and that if we aren't careful, profoundly distorts our relationship to God and to other people and to the material world and even our self-understanding. So there's a long way of saying that technology is like a liturgy, a bit like the communion, which is a sacrament. It shapes us, it forms us, it can mould us over time if we're unaware Okay, it's an interesting quote. Uh, he goes on, he says, to use technology is to participate in a cultural liturgy that if we aren't mindful, trains us to accept the core truth claims of modernity. That is, the only meaning there is in the world is what we choose to assign it in our endless quest to master nature. What we see is all there is. There's not a spirit, spiritual world, it's a material world, and, and our world is shaped by our tools. And we practice that again and again. Uh, when, when secular people tell me they're not religious, I always laugh, because I'm like, well, what liturgy do you do every day and every night? Uh, and I guarantee it will be shaping your thoughts and feelings. Does that make sense? It's a fascinating observation. Uh, and so, I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not trying to actually talk about screens in this talk. I just wanted to point out this idea that sometimes the things that form us might not be what we think is forming us. And in this way, we're a bit like fish in water. I'm sure you've heard that analogy in terms of uh, water for fish is a bit like culture for humans. That the things that kind of shape us and change us and mould us 
uh, are hard to see. So we might look at a country like, I don't know, China or, or um, Ireland or, or a country in Africa, and we can see and describe how their culture is different, but we find it hard to describe our own culture because we're fish <laughs> swimming around in digital culture, unable to understand how Angry Birds is shaping us. Um, and, uh, but, I mean, who doesn't want to be shaped by Angry Birds? Anyway, uh, I mean, this is one reason why it's so foundational, just on a totally side point, to read a bit of scripture every morning or every day because then we allow God's imagination to shape us and we start to see ourselves and our culture through God's eyes, which is totally different than starting with the news or Facebook or email. Does that make sense? Like it's so powerful to start every day with some of the Word of God. Uh, so anyway, like the magic eye, which is an optical illusion, uh, we are formed uh, by the things we can't see, even as Christians. And sometimes what we worship is hidden in plain sight, which is the foundation of what I want to talk about today. So this is, a, this is the first talk in a series called Eyes That See. And you'll find out that, that that analogy or that expression comes from Psalm 115, which I'll talk about in a moment, about idols who can see but can't see. And this is not a talk about technology, it's a talk about love, about who we love, about what we love, and about how our loves and our longings are shaping us uh, in terms of worship, and this old ancient biblical word called idolatry, which surprisingly still shapes us today. Uh, and uh, the, the original talk actually began because uh, there are two series that I've had on my heart for a long time. And I'm really thankful. So Julia Vidal and Michael Wood have joined the teaching team. So we're going to hear from them this year a number of times. And I know. And uh, is that because you don't get to hear from me? So, and, um, and, and we were getting together and talking about these two ideas that I've had on my heart. But I've wrestled because they're so different in terms of who they speak to and how they might challenge us. But they're both really challenging. So one is called Longing for Love. And it will be a talk about love and relationships, about gender and identity. And, and in terms of culture and swimming, we are entirely swimming in a particular worldview around those things, uh, which is quite different from the biblical analogy of what it means to love deeply. Uh, and, and very challenging. You know, traditionally, that's been uh, pushed to the right side of politics as a conservative issue and not a progressive one. And then the other topic I feel very passionate about, which I believe is one of the great moral issues of our day, which will shape our children more than any other issue, is climate change. And we're going to call the topic earthkeeping. And there's some beautiful eco-theology and, and um, words from God in Scripture about being earthkeepers, what it means to love the earth and to be stewards in a way that doesn't have dominion and, and destroy. Uh, and that has been traditionally pushed uh, as an issue to the left, and the church has traditionally been pretty bad at actually earthkeeping and being on the front foot of fighting this injustice in the way that we use greed to destroy our planet. Uh, and, but you can see they're so different. I'm like, really easy topics, God. Thanks very much. And, uh, and so we are going to tackle them this year. Um, but beforehand, it just didn't feel right. So Michael and Julia and I were kind of thinking, well, how do they connect? And these guys immediately saw it. And they said, it's all about who or what you worship. It's about what you love most and about how we orientate our heart. Uh, they might seem like very different issues, but essentially it's about do we love God and how do we express that in our lives? Uh, are we seeing the culture around us and the narratives that frame us, whether we sit on the left or the right of politics, or are we looking through God's eyes and having eyes that see? Do you follow? 
So we are going to explore it, but we thought we would start off with a few talks to frame the theology of idolatry and the idolat- and, and the frame uh, what it means to love and worship in order to guide us as we look at these very sensitive but very important themes. It's going to be a good year. I'll have grey hair by the end and so will all of us. So, um... Uh, where were we? Yeah, so Fyodor, Fyodor Dostoevsky, I had to practice that like 20 times today, and we're going to talk about our first love. So Fyodor Dostoevsky, author of Brothers, The Brothers Karamazov, a Russian author, uh, he said, so long as man remains free, he strives for nothing so... In s- I knew Ina. Ina speaks Russian, so I knew I'd get that wrong. How do we say it, Ina? Say it again, please. Please help it go. Yeah, I could never say that. Okay, so that's the person's name. Uh, and, uh, yep, and he wrote the Brothers Karamazov. Um, <laughs> and then he said, in perfect English, so long as man remains free, he strives for nothing so incessantly and so painfully as to find someone to worship. It's a great quote. So what he's saying is, as humans, we have a, perpen- a propensity to worship someone or something. It's, and, and we do it as an act of love. It's part of who we are. It's in our DNA. Uh, and therefore, worship is about love. It's about purpose. It's about our drive for meaning. You know, we all, we all long for connection. We long for relationship. We all long to connect with something existential and transcendent and bigger than ourselves. Even if we don't call ourselves followers or Jesus or religious people, we still look for a sunset or a sunrise or, or a musical event, and we want to be part of something big. You know, we long to worship. We long to be in connection with people, relationship with others, with things. And that is the heart of what it means to worship. Do you follow? Um, and, and at the heart of it all is love. I had to give him glasses, so I hope that's okay, you know. <laughs> um, so look, uh, worship is about what we love the most. Okay, it's, it's, it's about who or what we love. So, look, love is beautiful. Love is healthy. It's one of the most um, beautiful of our motivations as human beings. Uh, love calls us out of our comfort zones and propels us towards others. And love calls us to become better people, which is the motivation to worship something. But according to the Bible, the challenge with love is not that we love or that we love too much, but it's that we love the wrong things in the wrong way and most particularly in the wrong order. And if we order our love one way in a way that makes ourselves God and ourselves the centre of the universe, like Adam and Eve did when they ate the knowledge of the tree of the good and evil, the, the tr- fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, if we try to be like God rather than love God as a child of God, then our worship becomes idolatry and we end up with brokenness and anxiety and fear and concern and worry, which is what we're going to talk about, the order of our love. Uh, And God does not want us to experience the pain of worshipping an idol. So at the root of worship uh, is idolatry if we orient it away from God uh, and it's about wanting to be God rather than be a child of God. So when it comes to worship, these questions are very interesting. And and Tim Keller, I heard this first from Tim Keller. He said that if we want to know who or what we worship from the perspective of idolatry, we need to ask ourselves the question, what is the functional master of my heart? And these questions are really helpful. What do I love so much that it defines me? 
What do I orientate my life around when no one is watching? And what captivates my thinking day in and day out, shaping my everyday choices? What is the functional master of my heart? That's how we know who or what we worship. So let's pause for a moment. I mean, what we like to do for the introverts is just have a moment of silence. Just look at the screen, think about a question and listen to what God might be saying. And then we'll move on to some scripture. Let's look at Scripture. Now, we're going to look at two very important passages. Uh, One is from the book of Exodus, and the other is Psalm 115, which are both extremely important to understand worship, love, and idolatry. So uh, Moses was given Ten Commandments, as I'm sure you've heard, uh, in the the Sinai Desert, and and they were to be uh, the instructions or the rule book or the constitution, I suppose, for Israel as they became God's people. And the first two commandments are all about God, and loving God. So let's read, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now the first command is simple, love God. I mean, right up there, first and foremost. Uh, it's about the orientation of our heart. We are called to love God with everything we have full stop. The second commandment is basically the same, looking at it from a human perspective. Uh, If you're going to love God, you need to not love other gods, other spiritual beings that shape your worldview and and orientate your habits. And so we're not to uh, worship anything other than God, which we call an idol because it means we degrade our love for God. They're the first two commandments. And we're going to talk about monotheism and what it means to have one God over all of our life when we talk next week. Uh, And so in terms of context, it's really helpful to understand what it means to worship an idol and what it means, therefore, to not idol worship because we just don't have this kind of concept in our culture in a very powerful or tangible way. So, look, imagine you're in Mesopotamia, about 900 BC, and uh, you see a man, okay, and they cut down a chunk of wood, a tree, Uh, And they take it from the forest and they used handmade tools to carve some type of image or statue of a bird or a reptile or a human. And then they say that this statue, this this new piece of wood, this idol is their new god. And and they put this god in their family home uh, and they, they give vows and they light incense and they pray to this new god. They welcome it in as part of the family to to provide a blessing from the gods uh, to the family to bring peace and health and happiness. This is what happens. And over time, the statue kind of becomes a person, kind of becomes part of their family life. Rather than being inanimate, the, the statue becomes a living being with spiritual power behind it, which we understand as an idol. Uh, and the family begin to find their identity in this statue they begin to bow down and worship this idol. Uh, And that's what it means to have an idol in the biblical sense. Now, for us, you know, postmodern, enlightened people, I mean, we might laugh. We might laugh at this idea that you would cut a tree down and worship it. Um, We might say that this Mesopotamian man was so unadvanced and uh, and we could never do something (laughs) as foolish or as 
or as ridiculous as that. Um, but it's interesting because we need to look at how the idol works in this man's life. You see, when you look at this person, um, and if, if we were to even say to this person, don't be ridiculous, it's just a statue, it's a tree that you cut out yourself, that they wouldn't be able to hear it. And they wouldn't be able to see our perspective. They wouldn't be able to understand what we're trying to say. Like They would literally be blind to it because when we speak to this person, their idol is sitting between us and them. Okay? It starts to shape their worldview. It starts to, to mould their perspectives. And, and what the Scriptures say is uh, because the statue can't see, he can't see, and because the statue can't talk, then, then, then the, the person will no longer be able to talk. Um, in fact, because they make... Uh, the statue of their God, the more they worship that idol, the more they become to mirror the life of that idol. And this is, this is what we see in Psalm 115. So let me read the psalm. And it's an ancient Hebrew poem and it shines light on our universal desire to worship. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but cannot smell. I love the visual imagery. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. And those who make them, this is important, those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Now, look, few of us worship idols of wood any longer. But let's not forget that an idol is anything that we love and prioritize before Jesus. What do I love so much that it defines me? What do I orientate my life around when no one is watching? What captivates my thinking day in and out and shapes my everyday choices? What's the functional master of my heart? You know, it could be work. It could be children. Uh, we can make an idol out of our families could be fashion, could be retirement, or Nutella, although that is pretty cool. Um, environmental causes, social media, church traditions can easily be an idol that draws us away from God. Uh, exercise, investment, sexuality, football, shopping. Do you know what I mean? Like almost anything can be an idol. And, and what's interesting is we may, not, we may not worship wood anymore, but our culture sure as heck worships some of these things. Do you follow? Uh, now what's important is it's not... It's not about how much time we spend on these things. Like if, if it was about the amount of time, then family and work would clearly be our idols, and it doesn't, they don't have to be. It's about the orientation of our love. It's about the priority of our heart, how we make decisions, and, and how we call the things that we call. Does that make sense? Do we orientate all of our choices around the football or all of our money around shopping? Um, and is that what we dream about and think about and, and hopeful when no one else is looking. If that's the case, it might be that there's a bit of an idol. There's a spiritual power behind that that is shaping who you are and how you're becoming. Do you follow? Okay. Uh, and so, look, this is, I did this, well, a while ago I wrote a Targum, which is like a reinterpretation. So this is the new revised Daniel version or the digital version, uh, but I thought it would be worth repeating, okay? So why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Their idols are lithium, cobalt, glass, made by human hands. They have cameras, but they cannot see. Siri, but cannot speak. 
They have touch screens, but they cannot feel 5G mobility, but they cannot walk. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. So to drive this point home, I want to give us, I want to read a bit of a quote or a speech from a man called David Foster Wallace, who was a non-religious postmodern novelist, uh, and, and he, he said something quite amazing at um, Kenyon College. It was like a leaver's address. And this is quite a famous talk. Uh, if you haven't heard it or read it in full, it's really worth reading on the internet. But he talks about, in modern-day terms, what it means to worship and what the impact of idols are on our life. Let me read a few snippets. It's beautiful. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, he's speaking this to university students who are leaving to go into the workplace, okay? In the, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will never, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out and so on. It's pretty profound, isn't it, from someone who isn't coming from a religious perspective. And so Wallace expresses the heart of 115, Psalm 115, that we all have a propensity to worship someone or something. It's not if we worship, it's what we worship, and therefore it's very important that we can see, uh, like fish in culture, what are the cultural idols or spiritual forces of our culture so that we can worship Christ alone? Do you follow? And that's why we want to go through this. Um, and so I'm not saying that these are bad things. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. Uh, most of these are good things, and some of them are even great things. It's okay to have passions and interests and pursuits that are not religious. You know, Life would be incredibly boring if we came to this kind of building every day and just sung songs constantly. And that is not God's imagination for what a full and rich life looks like in this earth. On this earth, the kingdom of God involves all these amazing pursuits and we have purpose and passion within it. Um, work is great and children are very precious. I'd even say that caravans are okay if you lend them to your friends for free. You know who I'm talking about. <laughs> However, good things are not good if they usurp God in our hearts and in our minds. Do you follow? And that's what worship and idolatry is about. Uh, It's about who we love most and about what we love when we are by ourselves. So, uh, I suppose my point is that as Christians it's possible, and to be honest, I'll put my hand up as well, we can and do worship other gods without without knowing it. We all do. Um, And that's okay, But the process of being a disciple of Jesus is to go from unbelief to belief in every area of your life to allow Jesus through the Holy Spirit to reveal the idols that we are drawn towards and to slowly orientate everything, money, sex, power, family, dreams, holidays, exercise, fashion, work, orientate it more and more and more under the Lordship of Jesus 
so we become more and more like Christ over time, which is what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. It's beautiful. So I'm not here to condemn and I'm not here to accuse or make people feel guilty. That is not the intention of this talk. It's simply about awareness. It's about awareness so that we can see. Uh, I'm going to give one example and then we're going to move towards the end, which is... Um, and here, here's an example which I think... I hope, you can, hope it's not... Well, it may be controversial, but hey, let's go anyway... I've had a number of conversations recently which have been initiated by friends of mine who aren't at all religious. And they have not been able to understand and have asked me why the vast majority of white evangelical American Christians voted for Donald Trump and continue to vote for him. And I've been asked quite a few times. And to be honest, I struggle to answer that question. Except to say, and this is where I've ended up going, is that it's possible to be a, a believer saved by Jesus who, who love him but who haven't oriented their life and their habits and their thinking or their voting around who Jesus is. And what I'm not saying, actually, I'm not saying that Democrats are right. I'm not saying Republicans are wrong. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. There are um, godly, faithful people on both sides of the political spectrum, just like in Australia, and actually, some of the issues on both sides represent the heart of God, and some of the issues don't. There is no, in my mind, Christian party. But what I am saying, and this is where I repeat a conversation that I had, or something I learned from Alan Hirsch, who I really respect as a spiritual leader. And he said that you cannot love Jesus and get excited about voting for a man like Donald Trump. You can vote for him because you can't bear to vote for the other team, but to get behind him and rally and to get excited and put your faith in and prophesy over him, to, to, to want to celebrate a person with the character of Donald Trump means that you don't really know who Jesus is. And I actually really resonate with that comment um, because Jesus is a peacemaker and Jesus is kind and truthful Jesus sacrifices himself for others. He loves the poor and the refugees and the outcasts. He challenged greed and power and materialism used from the top down. He binds the brokenhearted. He forgives. He heals. He trusts. He loves. Does that make sense? Like We must think deeper than single-issue politics if we're to be faithful followers of Jesus. In fact, I don't think you can be a follower of Jesus in our current cultural climate and vote without any concerns about who you're voting for. <laughs> because nothing is truly gospel. Does that make sense? So I'm not saying we should be cynical about our choices. Well, what I'm saying is let's, let's allow Jesus to shape all of our lives and allow our lives to slowly and consistently mold towards him. Let's see where the idols are in our thinking and allow ourselves to see from the other perspectives, from God's perspective. Okay. So... To finish, I want to finish with a talk, the end of the talk by David Wallace. And, and really what he's saying uh, is that it's about awareness. And for us, it's not, that, um, it's, not that we, it's not that we need to feel bad. It's just that we need the Holy Spirit to continue to show us who or what we're worshipping and to continue to repent, which is metanoia, which we talked about last year, to change our mind and to believe change our actions, so we look more and more and more like Jesus over time. Uh, and let me read his final talk, which, 
By the way, his talk is called This is Water. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that is what you're doing. And what he's saying is it is about simple awareness, awareness about what is so real, he says, and so essential, so hidden in plain sight all around us that we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over and over, this is water, this is water. So really what he's saying, and I think this is where I, uh, the conclusion I've come with, that we all worship someone or something. Most of the time it's Jesus, but sometimes we need to see if our heart is being drawn to something else as our priority. It's not about judgment, it's about freedom. Because idols enslave. <laughs> idols lead to anxiety and shame, fear, brokenness, selfishness, greed, the stuff that we see in the scriptures called sin whenever we live a life that doesn't have God first. Which is why God loves us enough, actually, to say that we should love him first and never love our idols. So we're going to finish, and I just want you to reflect on this question. Is there any area in your life that Jesus might be opening up and saying, there is a functional master of my heart that shapes my habits and my time and my hopes? above him. They're often the secret places, the ones I wouldn't be willing to talk about with others. They're, they're the places that give me anxiety or fear or, or, or the hidden places. Um, for me, if I'm honest, money has always been one of those areas. You know, do I really want to give access to Jesus to everything? Could he have every part of my paycheck? Could he have every aspect of my dreams of how I use my wealth? Could he have my super? Does that make sense? Everyone has different idols that are harder to give to Jesus. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you'll show us, nudge us, and, and free us from the things that might enslave us. And I thank you that you are the God who does see, who does hear, who does walk, who does talk, and who does love, and that you'll free us from our idols as we see it and repent and ask you to fill us again. Let's just pause for a moment, and then we're going to move to communion. listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed this talk, follow us on Podbean or iTunes or connect with us through Facebook and Instagram at Together Church Hobart.